Well, please take out your Bibles and turn in your Old Testament to the book of Ezra. Our passage is Ezra chapter 4 this morning, and our theme is living in God's two kingdoms. And as a way of a little bit of a recap of what we're dealing with in Ezra, we are dealing with God's people after exile. The Davidic kingdom was divided into two, and they were sent into exile. And in Ezra, we see what happens when they are led out of exile back into their land. And briefly, I want to show you, which we've reviewed before, where the threat of exile came from, from where they disobeyed, and how they fell. Deuteronomy chapter 4 gives us one of the several areas in Scripture where the threat of exile is given. Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 28 says, When your father, children, and children's children, and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. This is the threat of exile when the Mosaic law was given. If you disobey, I will send you away. And do they disobey? Indeed they do. Second Kings 21, we read of the evil king Manasseh. And here's some of the things he did. It says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out. He rebuilt the high places. Remember I shared with you that there's the altar of the Lord and then there's the altars of the false gods? He rebuilt all of the altars. He erected an altar to Baal. He worshipped the host of heaven, which is to say he worshipped what God had created and he did not worship the creator. He burned his son. He used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. This is the king of of Israel, the leader of God's people did these things. And was God angry with him? Indeed, very, very angry was he. So angry, in fact, that when Josiah, the next king, came and reformed the kingdom, it says that I still am angry with Manasseh and what he did. So in 2 Kings 24 and 25, we read about the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. They're sent away out of the land. And then we can read in Daniel some of the experiences of the exiles, uh, the faith that they had. Psalm 137, how can I sing the Lord's song by the sea of Babylon? That gives us a flavor of their experiences in exile. How can we praise you, Lord, when we're here in a foreign land? And in Jeremiah 29, which we'll go to briefly, they're actually given instructions. When you go into exile... Here's what you should do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. 
Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And further, they're given instructions in 1 Kings 8. It's a very helpful passage. 1 Kings 8, 46 through 50 says, If they sin against you, this is talking about, this is at the dedication of the temple of Solomon. He's saying to the Lord, If these people sin against you, Lord, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet... If they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies, who carried them captive and pray to you toward your land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I built for your name, then... Here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. This is what you will do if you go into exile. You will pray and plead with the Lord. And so we read that the Lord delivers his people after the promised 70 years of exile. And that is where we find ourselves in Ezra. We find ourselves dealing with God's people out of exile. In Ezra 1.1... We said that we're learning about the inspiration of Scripture because it's the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. We read about the interpretation of Scripture because it says that those words might be fulfilled. And we read about the influence that the Lord has over even kings. He stirs up the heart of Cyrus, right? Ezra 1 and 2, we had this theme, a picture of God's people being prepared to enter into his presence and worship. Ezra 3, what was our theme there? Our unity in Christ in this age and the age to come. And now we find ourselves in Ezra 4 with the theme, living in God's two kingdoms. And before we get to point one, I just want to give you a brief little picture of God's people as they emerge throughout the Old Testament. Before exile, we have the Davidic kingdom. We have Solomon. There's a godly king. There's laws, a sovereign rule, worship. They are geographical, political, religious. They're sovereign. After exile, they're primarily religious. They don't have a king on the throne. They don't even have a land. They're sent to Babylon. They're exiled from their land. They're primarily now a spiritual people. And so you see the image of the church slowly emerge in the Old Testament when you get to post-exilic Israel. I'd even argue that the garden and the Davidic and Solomonic kingdoms are maybe the clearest picture of the future kingdom, sinless, perfect king on the throne, ruling, and yet we have Israel in exile, maybe a better example of our age. God's people, primarily a religious people, but in man's kingdom. Strange, but helpful. Not a geopolitical power, a spiritual people. 
So let us follow my outline here, which there's many points, but it's meant to follow the narrative. So you can see it printed in your bulletin. The adversaries, the threat, the accusation, the king's orders, Israel's response, and our dual citizenship. I will read the sections as we get to them. So point one, the adversaries. Ezra 4, 1 through 3. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now when? The very first two words. When? This is about a year after the foundation of the temple had been laid. So it's a year later. It says the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. Who are these adversaries? They kind of just enter in. The adversaries of Benjamin and, Benjamin and Judah, by the way, the southern kingdoms. Who are these adversaries? This, they are the relics of the ten tribes. They're not the Chaldeans or the Persians, by the way. Notice it's not Babylonians. It's not Medo-Persians. Maybe in the future you could say it wouldn't be the Greeks and the Romans. No, actually, it's the ten northern kingdoms. And the ten northern kingdoms, by the way, they had a capital city. The, the southern kingdom had Jerusalem. What's the name of the city of the capital of the northern kingdoms? Samaria. So these adversaries are the Samarians. The Samaritans, excuse me, the remnant of the ten tribes who joined themselves to foreigners and patched up, I have to say, what Matthew Henry calls a mongrel religion. They patched it together. They assimilated. After the division of the twelve kingdoms, the two southern kingdoms continued on for a season of faithfulness, but the ten northern kingdoms, they gave them over to a bastardized form of religion, mixing Judaism with various forms of paganism. In 2 Kings 17, which you may turn with me if you can, we get a little picture of this. In 2 Kings 17, 6, it says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah, and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So this is about the, the northern kingdom was captured and the king of Assyria took all the Jews out of the land. And what did he do? Look in verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And it says in verse 25, and they did not fear the Lord. These people did not fear the Lord. Look at what the Lord does. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria said, we need one of your priests to come in here and help us. This 
people's God is sending lions. So the priest was sent to teach them. However, in verse 25, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities of which they lived. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. This is the adversaries of Benjamin and Judah. And they served those gods after the manner of the nations from whom they had been carried away and from whom those people had been brought in. In verse 34 it says, maybe this is the best description of the adversaries of the Lord. It says, to this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord and they do not follow his statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel. So these are the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin that say, hey, we heard. It says right there in Ezra 1, chapter 4-1. Now when the adversaries heard, what did they hear? What does it mean they heard? Do you remember in Ezra 3:13? it said that the shouts were so great that the sound was heard far away? When they were at the dedication of the foundation of the temple and there were shouts of joy and shouts of sorrow, but it was so loud you couldn't even understand the difference between the two. And the shouts were so loud they were heard far away. The next verse says, now the adversaries heard. They heard that this was being built. And so they said what? Let us join you. Let us help you build. We're with you. We've been here the whole time worshiping and sacrificing. Because they had a track record of assimilation. It was expedient for them to join with whatever local religion, religion uh, was there and to blend it in. And seeing the Jews making such a loud noise, being organized, restoring the temple, they said, hey, we should join with them. Listen to the power. But the leaders of God's people said, no, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. We are chosen, appointed, holy, and set apart. We alone can offer right worship to God. But we cast out demons in your name. No, 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 out. You could also imagine, in some ways, if you could think about the first temple and the latter temple, the former and the latter temple, the latter temple in some ways has greater glory, even though we read that it was but a shadow of the original temple. For the latter temple was built under great persecution and turmoil. Was Solomon's temple? No. It says in 1 Kings, the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. But in the time of Jeshua and Zerubbabel and the Israelites out of exile, they have great conflict around them. And so we see that the wisdom, power, and goodness of God is greatly glorified in the building of the, all those smaller, in some ways greater, second temple. Because the church is encouraged even more to trust in God. Even more to trust in God. Notice that the worst enemies weren't Babylon. They were actually given a fairly peaceful life. Nor Persia, where the Lord stirs up the heart of Cyrus and Cyrus sends the decree that they can leave. No, the worst enemies were those who claimed to be Jews, but were not. Revelation 3.9 says this, Behold, 
I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus keeps his church pure. He keeps his church pure because our Lord is our bridegroom. He invites those to the wedding and offers them a white robe, but he doesn't allow stain into his presence. So this doesn't mean that we divide over every jot and tittle of doctrine, that we uh, endlessly debate the finer points until we find churches that believe exactly just so the way we do. It even says in our confession that the purest churches are still mixed with error, are subject to a, a mixture of error. But it does say in 1 Timothy that the household of God, by the way, the household of God is temple language. The household of God is what we would have thought of as the temple in the Old Testament. The household of God, which is the church of the living God, is a pillar and buttress of the truth, of the truth. And our Lord, who is the only way to the Father, is the way, the truth, and the life. So we have faith that the Lord protects his church. He is indeed our mighty fortress. So it is good that we contend for the faith. And how? Attend the means of grace. And hope, hope for the day where everyone worships the Lord face to face. So the Israelites here says, no, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to God. So the next point, the threat. So what happens? The threat. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. They threatened them. Why keep the church pure? Why do they say you have nothing to do with us? Well, look at what happens as soon as they're told, you are not one of us, go out. We dare not let wolves with sheep's clothing into the church. A shepherd protects the sheep. The Lord protects us. How? Sound doctrine, preaching in spirit and in truth. We have the wisdom of our Lord. If we allow wolves in, what's the Lord going to do? He's going to send lions in to devour the wolves. Our Lord is going to keep his church pure. You can see the real intent of the Samaritans, by the way, in this passage. They didn't say, let us in, we're one of you. And then when they were excluded, they didn't go run home and search the scriptures to see if maybe the Israelites were right all along and repent and say, oh, what do we need to do? No, they discouraged them. They made them afraid and they bribed counselors to frustrate. They bribed people to infiltrate and threaten them. Gangster is organized and criminal. Go threaten them. Go make them feel scared. Arm twisting. Pure hatred. Darkness hates the light. Doesn't darkness hate the light? Our ancient foe, the serpent, he who first tempted Adam in the garden, who rages... He still seeks to work us well, 
to scare us, to cause us fear. Is he capable? He's a formidable enemy. His craft and power are great. He tries to trick the church, let me in. And then he tries to discourage the church, then to scare, and then to accuse. He wants to accuse you. What weapon does he carry? He's armed with cruel hate. This is our enemy. Is there anyone who could stand against him? On earth is not his equal. On earth is not his equal. So let's not confide in our own strength. If Satan is armed with cruel hate, our Lord is wearing an entire suit of armor, isn't he? We can face many threats to the church. As a matter of fact, it wasn't very many years ago we weren't able to meet for a season, right? And we see a lot of confusion in truth, doctrine, and godly living. We face pressures from the world to conform. The prince of darkness is grim, and he badly wants to hurt us. But we don't tremble for him because we can endure his rage. We know his doom is sure, and with one word, he will be felled. And that word is the word. But we must stand fast. So what happens? The accusation. Hear what they do. Skipping to verse 11, when, when the people are afraid of them, they further make an accusation to Artaxerxes the king, starting in verse 11. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. They send an accusation to the king. No longer, by the way, Cyrus, a few years have passed, so it's another king now. The same king we think Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, also called Cambyses in some places. They wrote a letter to him, and they showed their true allegiance. Because earlier it says, we worship your God like you do, we're one of you. Let us in. But then in their letter they say, to the king, we're your servants. Your servants send word. So they showed their true allegiance. The exiles are concerned with building the house of their father, the one true God. The Samaritans are worried about the king. They make accusations. First, they lie. Did you spot the lie? It's the Jews have barely finished the foundation of the temple. And by the way, it made some of the old people cry to see it. They had barely finished the foundation of the temple. But what does the letter say they're building? They're building cities and walls. Once these people are established, O king, they will no longer recognize you. 
They will want to establish themselves as an autonomous kingdom yet again. They won't pay tribute customer toll. Your revenue will be impaired. What's the claim here? The claim is that God's people are a threat to rulers, principalities, and magistrates. If you let them worship freely, they will eventually throw off your rule and become a rebellious city. Search the records. They were seditious. But remember, the Jews are no longer a geopolitical entity. Once a mighty king and once a mighty kingdom, they're not independent. Now we see God's people as exiles, citizens of the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. So they have dual citizenship now. We see the church is slowly emerging, now primarily concerned with spiritual matters, with worshiping the one true God. We don't work as the church to overthrow the government. Nobody claims we should stop paying taxes. We say, render under Caesar what is due to him. We're admonished to pray for our rulers and magistrates and be good citizens. As much as possible, we ought to get along with all people. But the accusation said they won't be peaceful people. They will usurp and overthrow. They'll take away a portion of your kingdom and take away your income. They are rebellious and seditious people. It's sort of true, in a way, they were a rebellious and seditious people. We only have to go be reminded of what Manasseh did when he set up altars to false gods. They apostatized against the king of kings. So in a way, they are right. These accusations, these darts, these whispers that Satan can sometimes give to us, they can be true. They can be true. And look at what they say what their motivation is. We who eat the salt of the palace. They were on the salary of the palace. That's where we get the word salary from, from the word for salt. They were on the payroll. They were on the king's payroll. See, king, we're on your payroll. We can't bear to see your income harmed. These people might steal it from you. They want to rule over themselves and overthrow your authority. If you let them finish their work, you will lose what is yours. And perhaps we'll lose some of what we get from you, king. So don't let these people take power. There's a pitting of these two kingdoms here. So what is the king's response? The king's orders in verses 17 through 22. He takes this accusation and he says this in his answer, to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree and search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? 
he sends a cease and desist letter. Stop immediately before you harm me even more. Where first in Ezra we see that Cyrus sent a proclamation, allow them to go home and build. Now we have a new king sending a different proclamation. Stop lest you hurt me. The king and his court learned history. They learned history. There were mighty kings in Jerusalem, weren't there? Were there mighty kings in Jerusalem? Indeed there were. And people made tribute to them, these mighty kings. He said, oh, this great empire, it cannot be allowed to return. If they continue in this way, perhaps everyone will eventually follow them. Don't allow that. See, the king understood the power of the fallen kingdom. These Jews who were once mighty, don't allow them to return to power, or else they might overthrow us, as we overthrew Babylon, as Babylon overthrew them. See the future hope here of the new earth. While yet we are in both kingdoms, called to be dual citizens and good neighbors, the king's fears aren't actually totally unfounded. One day our Lord will return. Turn with me to Psalm 2. The great, great second part to Psalm 1 about our Lord. And it says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's the father talking to the son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We actually have a bit of a hope of what the king was afraid of in a way, but we have a spiritual hope. This psalm quoted again in Revelation 2.27 to show us what happens on the great day of our Lord when he returns. It's actually the Lord's inheritance. It says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. So in a way, the king had right fear, in a way. However, this is not the work of the church. This is not the work of the church. The work of the church is to worship God in spirit and in truth and to go out into the world proclaiming the good news. We say, come you who are weak and heavy laden and see our Lord Jesus. He is good. He will give rest. He will give comfort and encouragement while you toil as an outsider in the kingdom of man. One day a week we see dimly. Which day is that? That's this day. We get to see dimly. We hear the words, sing the songs, instructed. We see our Lord's body broken for us. Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. But the, the restoration of the kingdom, if you will, the physical manifestation of it, that's the Lord's work. That's the Lord's work. The king feared the mighty men of old. He feared that within Israel there may be a spark of power that should by no means be rekindled. So he sent them a cease and desist letter. And what did the Jews do in response to the cease and desist letter? The last two verses of the chapter read, Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, 
and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. For how long? Another 15 years. We'll find that out when we get to Ezra 5. The people stopped the work on the house of the Lord. Because the Samaritans, where they failed by lying and threatening and in bullying and in bribing, the king succeeds. The king succeeds. One cease and desist letter from the king puts them on their heels and they stop the work. See, just a little while ago, all the people were shouting with the great shout at the end of Ezra 3 when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. There was great communion of God's people, shouting so loud that it was heard from far away. What a difference now that they cease the building of the house of God. And so they've lost hope again. So where does that leave us at the end of this chapter? Such a frustrating and sad and forlorn way of ending my passage. I struggled deeply with the idea of just going further and further in because there is some, some beautiful resolution and truth that comes in five and six and, and further. But I think this is a good place to talk about our final point, our dual citizenship. We are citizens of God's two kingdoms. God's two kingdoms. Not a kingdom of God and a kingdom of man per se, but God's two kingdoms. Now the church does not bow to the kingdom of man. The church prays for the kingdom of man. We're not called to be new Adams. We worship the true and better Adam. It's not our job to be Adams. We have the true and better Adam. So we wait for his glorious day. And what does that mean? Until then, we're exiles. Citizens both in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And to further drive home the point that both are God's kingdoms, you could go to a number of places, but Ezra 1.1 is as good as any. God stirred up the heart of Cyrus. God does not say he has no control or sovereignty over man's kingdom, right? God is in control of, God, of the kingdom of man. Both are God's kingdom. But it's not the church's battle to reform the kingdom of man. And it's not for us to be afraid of the kingdom of man. We're citizens of both kingdoms, called to be salt and light, to be model citizens. But again, the church's ministry is not to reform the kingdom of man. If you imagine, we've talked about this image of walking along a road and having ditches on both sides, and we use this image as a way of kind of holding certain doctrines and things in tension. On one side of the uh, road, the ditch might be the church, the kingdom of God, trying to look like the kingdom of man. Let's reform ourselves so we look just like them. I don't know what you might think that would look like, but very progressive, uh, um, seeker-sensitive, culturally relevant, theologically and doctrinally compromising Christianity. Whatever it takes, let's look just like the world. Or maybe even a version of Christian nationalism. Let's make our church look just like this political party or that political party, right? That's a ditch over here. That's wanting the church to look like the world. Well, what would happen on the other ditch? The church trying to make the world look like the church. You might have heard of the term theonomy 
or some of these other ideas where we're new atoms and it's our job to infiltrate every corner of society and implant Christian leaders and Christian magistrates and Christian governors. It's a confusion of the kingdoms because that is a good thing for us to do as citizens of the kingdom of man. Our standard that the Christian believes for government and society and culture ought not to be different from the standard of all the non-Christians in the world. We say murder is bad. You ought to agree with us that murder is bad. This isn't a Christian ideal per se. This is an image bearer's idea, okay? So it's not our job to create a Christian government. The Lord, he will break all the nations with his rod of iron. But until then, we pray for our government. We pray for our magistrates. We pray for them. And we pray because we have the true and better Adam. He wears the whole armor of God. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle not with the world and its politics. Our wrestle is against cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. So our great champion, who is the blessed man, who holds even kings of the earth in the palm of his hand, he goes before us with what? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. He's our hope. He alone is our hope. Not that we get the right person in government, not that we have the right uh, Christian nationalization of our world. That's not where our hope is. We are the bride of Christ. He calls us to his heavenly kingdom. And it says in Romans 8 that creation is aching and groaning and longing for the renewal of all things. But he says, but your struggle's just for a little while. It's just for a little while. Our Lord, who is our very hope and salvation, he actually calls us to wait patiently for the redemption of our bodies. But just like Daniel obeyed first kings, when Daniel was in exile, he prayed. And how did he pray? Toward the land. He prayed toward the land and said, God, we repent in dust and ashes. Restore us. Well, he has restored and redeemed us in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We've been clothed with robes of righteousness. Yet we still pray towards the land. Maranatha, Lord, come soon. Thy kingdom come. We want him to come back and set everything right. We badly wait for that day. But we wait patiently because that's where our hope is in that day. Here are some instructions from 1 Peter in, clothing, in closing and in clothing of wisdom, if you will. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 17. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the language of the exile. Once you were not a people. Once you were not a people. But now we are a people of God, spiritual. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what? So beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, not as new Adams, not as many kings, as aliens and travelers in exile, to do what? Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We get these wonderful instructions on how we ought to live as exiles. Praise be to God that we have a king sitting on his throne today, and he is the king of kings. And though it is a confusing time as we are in exile as aliens and sojourners, and we have this dual citizenship that is hard to understand sometimes, praise be to God that he loves us so much that he gave us these wonderful images of his people in exile, and yet he gives us an even better image of the deliverer, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is to him that we worship and praise. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true and good. Father, we pray that you come soon. We pray, Lord, that we see you face to face soon and that you do away with every tear, every sinful impulse, every conflict. We long, Lord, to be in your church, pure, unstained, worshiping you. Thank you for the picture we get every week of that, Lord. May you come soon so it is every day every minute, Lord. And until then, we pray that you give us patience and endurance. We pray that you encourage us, strengthen us, Lord, and help us not to be afraid because we know that you are working all things together for your glory and our good. And so, Lord, by your spirit, will you strengthen and encourage us yet again. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.